0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: I had set out to write a book specifically about the science of learning, which was something I had become really interested in when my my two children started school. And this was now probably a decade ago. Um, And I ended up I tried. I tried for many years to write a book about the science of learning, but the problem there was that I couldn't find a big idea that pulled together all the disparate pieces of research that I was uncovering in the science of learning. And I really need a big idea to get excited about a project. And so it wasn't until I landed on the theory of the extended mind, which is was proposed um, by two philosophers. It is not my idea. It's, It's an idea that I borrowed from Andy Clark and David Chalmers um but it wasn't until i read their article which was written in 1998 on the uh, introducing the theory of the extended mind that i really realized that like okay this is what the book will be about or this is what is this is the big idea that will organize all this research that i've been collecting
0: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Annie, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Hey, I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
0: It is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually found out about your work when I came across your book, The Extended Mind. And it was kind of funny because I didn't quite know what I was getting myself into as somebody who's really into sort of, you know, becoming more productive, taking better notes. I thought, oh, this is going to be all about, you know, sort of brain power, And then, Mm -hmm. you know, I got through the book and and realized that you had taken something that I had thought was incredibly abstract and made it very concrete, uh, all of Mm -hmm. which we will get into. But before we do that, um, you know, in a lot of ways, I kind of see you as a social scientist. So I thought it would start by saying, what social mm-hmm. group were you a part of in high school, and what <laughs> impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career?
1: Oh gosh, well I went to uh, a distinctive kind of high school. It was an all girls school that yeah. I think in an earlier incarnation it had been more or less a finishing school for like rich mainline debutantes. Main the mainline is a affluent neighborhood outside of Philadelphia, and it still had traces of that when I was. There in the uh the eighties and nineties and i let's just say that was not me. <laughs> I was not comfortable on the lacrosse field or the hockey field hockey field or um or in a debutante ball or anything like that. I was bookish I was you know a kind of budding intellectual, and I found my tight circle of friends who we um, were like that too, but it was really, we were definitely in the minority. And so it, was, it wasn't really until I got to college that I felt like, okay, these are my people. We can talk about ideas. We don't have to um, marry the boy from the, <laughs> the boy's school. There literally yeah. was a bunch of, and lots of my classmates, you know, ended up marrying guys from Haverford. Um, mm-hmm. And that was not, that was not my destiny. Thankfully.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, in an environment like that, uh, what did you learn about, you know, sort of how people define success, you know, people's values when it comes to, around, comes to money and wealth? Because I think that, you know, all I know about an environment like that is what I've seen on television with TV shows uh-huh. like Gossip Girl. Um, I know that we had Annie Duke here who also went to a very uh-huh. similar type of school uh, when uh-huh. she was in high school, but only because her dad happened to be either a principal or a teacher there, not because she came from, you know, significant amounts of wealth.
1: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I, I didn't either. My, my parents were middle class at best, but had sort of dreams of... um I don't know vaulting me and my sister into another kind of social world, and it worked in the sense that um I got a fantastic education at the school because I was one of only a few students who actually cared about the schoolwork, so I had almost like mentoring relationships with a lot of my teachers and felt a lot more um a lot more kinship with my teachers than I did with a lot of my classmates but I would say that um being educated in an environment like that, it showed me how different people's values can be. You know, um, it's so easy when you surround yourself with people who are like yourself, which we all tend to do, to imagine that the whole world is like that. And, you know, I had many experiences to show me that that wasn't the case. But I do think that experience of of, of growing up and going to that school, which I attended for 12 years, so it was, it was a very big chunk of my growing up. Um, one thing it really instilled in me and it's this has been a theme that runs throughout everything I've written um is the importance of situation, the importance of context on behavior. And uh, it's never made sense to me that we have some kind of fixed innate uh personality or intelligence um because I felt myself to be so different, you know, when I was with my friends, the ones I the one I mentioned, the one the ones I mentioned who were you know more um similar to me or say with you know at home with my family I felt so different in those settings than I did in uh the larger school setting that was so, really so alien to me and so alienating so um I've always had a real appreciation for the role of context and uh situation in people's behavior and um in a way, that's what the extended mind is all about, too. It's all about how the space we're in, the state of our body, the um, c- the kinds of relationships that we're engaging in, how all those things affect the way we think. And so to, to imagine that we have some kind of fixed um, lump of intelligence that, you know, can be uh, evaluated and, and measured and ranked, and it's always the same and it always functions the same no matter where we are or how we're, how we're feeling, I just think that's... um that's deeply misconceived.
0: Yeah. Well, so, you know, it's funny because uh, context is something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about this past year one of my mentors. said, Mm. He said, you don't know your audience. And I remember Mm -hmm. where that became apparent to me is when, you know, uh, one of our uh, students showed up for, you know, one of our mastermind calls with a baby in tow. And I realized I'm giving Mm advice on how to be productive based on you know being <laughs> a 40-year-old single male, she's got two infants. So my advice <laughs> is effectively <Very> nonsense <laughs> um, at this point. And it, it made me realize, I was like, wow, it, I'm not, I overlooked the context of the advice that mm. I was giving. And I mm. realized that mm. that was actually very, very common. So there are two things I wonder about. Why do you think it is that people Overlook context when it comes mm-hmm. to prescriptive advice. You know, the mm-hmm. example I was I was thinking of this morning is you know all these authors who basically started putting the F word in the title of their book after Mark Manson's yeah. book. Like, Publishers have lost their damn minds. I'm like, there's context yeah. there that matters. Mark is a yeah. really good writer, uh, yeah. so there was that. But then you know, also in terms of prescriptive advice, you know, when people read a self help book or they take an online course, they completely overlook context. You Mm -hmm. think, oh, I'm just going to do this, what this person did, and I'm going to get the same results. And it's like, well, no, I mean, you know, like I grew up the son of a college professor. That's a pretty different Mm -hmm. context than somebody who grows up, you know, like getting shot at in the hood. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it seems to be a pretty universal cognitive bias that we, although I I will say it's much stronger in Western societies than in, in, it it appears to be stronger in Western societies than in Asian cultures or um, Eastern cultures. But uh, the cognitive bias is to focus on the individual and to attribute to the individual all these innate, inherent characteristics. You know, the, the psychologist Lee Ross called it the fundamental attribution error. You know, it is fundamental. It's like at the root of, um, of all of our thinking, we tend to um, attribute fixed characteristics to other people. But interestingly, we we often bring in situational context when we think about ourselves because we know we know that we acted that way because we were in a grumpy mood that day or we didn't do so well on that test not because we're not intelligent but because we were nervous or something like that so we have access to our our own insides you know and that leads us to bring in more context um more of a situational influence than when we look at other people and their behavior from the outside and yet still, I think we have this persistent bias to overlook the role of context and back, um, and um, environment and situation, even when it comes to ourselves. Um, yeah. And that was something I addressed in my very first book, which was called The Cult of Personality. It was about personality testing. It was a cultural critique and scientific, um, sorry, scientific critique and cultural history of personality testing. I did find, I, I did and do find personality testing uh, so fascinating because not only because they're used by organizations to sort of put people into boxes, which mm. I find offensive, but also, and this always flummoxed me, um, people want to be put into boxes in, so, in some sense. And people, <laughs> um, look, go out of their way to take these tests and, to, and really take their findings to heart. So I yeah. think there's a, real, a really strong drive. You know, I heard from so many Fans of the Myers-Briggs after I wrote that book, but um, people who said it had changed their lives and all the rest. So I think we really um, have a kind of um, built-in bias, it seems, to want to attribute fixed um
4: They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community. And that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips.
1: Qualities to ourselves and others. And I think that's because it's cognitively easier to process than, than always taking the situation into account. And it's also emotionally more satisfying.
0: It's funny you say that. Cause uh, in you know the book that you and I were talking about before we recorded that life-changing science of detecting bullshit, like one of the things mm-hmm. that, John Petrucci talks about is the fact that most of these personality tests are, in fact, bullshit. Mm-hmm. Uh, he mm-hmm. said, and then Vanessa Van Edwards, who studies people for a living, she said almost all of these have no actual, real, you know, systematic, like proper scientific method research backing them.
1: Right, right, which
0: is amazing, and people make huge, mm-hmm. you know, massive decisions. Which that you um, know, sort of follows up as a natural segue to the, the other part of context. So this is something I saw in the corporate world where I just did not thrive. Where you know, this is something I think where, where people overlook context is with performance improvement plans, right? One of the things that happens if you're somebody like me who's been fired from every job you had is you get put on a performance <laughs> improvement plan. But nobody ever <laughs> thinks about whether you're in that the right job in the first place, which is a huge mismatch of talent and environment, which is overlooking mm-hmm. context. And I've always said it's like performance improvement plans don't improve performance. They prevent mm-hmm. wrongful termination lawsuits. Uh, And so why is that? Like, why is it that, you know, in the context of an organization where somebody sucks at a job, nobody thinks to say, oh, maybe we put this person in the wrong role. We should find something that they might actually be good at.
1: Yeah. Well, it does seem to be there's such an enormous focus in the corporate world on hiring and finding the right person instead of creating the right situation for that person to thrive in. You know, and I. I really came away from the research that I did on The Extended Mind thinking that we need to rethink the role of leaders and managers. We need to think of them not as people managers exactly, but as situation creators. You know, they need to, yes, find the right people, but then put at least as much effort into creating environments in which those people can think well and and um, and thrive emotionally. And I think that piece gets left out a lot.
2: Uh, well- you
0: know, before we get uh into the book, uh, what was the narrative around careers uh, when you're growing up with your parents and then what is it that, you know, kind of put you down this trajectory to where you ended up writing this book and the previous one?
1: Oh, interesting. Well, I, I was a very self-driven child <laughs> and my parents were pretty laid back and I mean they they had um Hopes and dreams for my sister and me for sure, but not in a directive way. It was kind of like, whatever you want to do, we'll support you. So that's, that was nice. But I was, um, <laughs> you know, I've actually becoming been, I've actually become less ambitious in a sense over time. I was very driven as a, as a young person and I was very determined to succeed in a kind of conventional way. Um, And as over time and as life, you know, has unfolded, I think I've become more ambitious for my life as a whole and less ambitious for certain, in terms of meeting certain career milestones. Um, And I think you also, as you get older, you learn, you learn about yourself, you learn how you work best. You know, I, I actually, I like you have not necessarily thrived inside organizations. And so I've worked for myself for for many years now and, um, that works for me. And so does, um, a certain kind of reflect, reflective kind of pace. I, I hate being really busy <laughs> and i i I'm still, still wrestling with what, with whether one can be productive without being hyper busy, you know, yeah. and I, I don't have an answer for that yet, but I know that when I'm hyper busy, I'm miserable. So that's not an option.
0: Yeah. Well, what what in the world led you down this trajectory? Because like almost every (laughs) single person that I interviewed, this doesn't seem like a sort of linear path that, you know, is presented by high school guidance counselors that says, hey, this is what you should go do.
1: Oh, no, no. I mean, I kind of had this vague idea that I wanted to be a writer, but who who knows what that even means? You know, um, it took me a while to find my way to writing Uh, to to the things I write about, which are, which is social science, which is the science of human behavior. Um, Well, it's not, you know, actually I was going to say it wasn't that winding of a path. My first job was writing for my college's um, magazine. And that's when I started interviewing professors and researchers and realizing that I loved that kind of ideas, journalism. And then my second job was at Psychology Today, where I kind of, magazine where I kind of refined that further um, to realize that I, I really loved writing about the science, social science and the science of, of, of human behavior. So, um, and it was not long after that that I went freelance. So I've been a magazine writer and a book author since then. So um, it was a somewhat direct path, but the, the path that this book took was definitely wa- very winding. I had set out to write a book specifically about the science of learning, which was something I had become really interested in when my my two children started school, and this was now probably a decade ago. Um, and I ended up, I tried, I tried for many years to write a book about the science of learning, but the problem there was that I couldn't find a big idea that pulled together all the disparate pieces of research that I was uncovering in the science of learning and i really need a big idea to get excited about a project and so it wasn't until i landed on the theory of the extended mind which is was proposed um by two philosophers it is not my idea it's, it's an idea that i borrowed from andy clark and david chalmers um but it wasn't until i read their article which was written in 1998 on the uh, introducing the theory of the extended mind that i really realized that like okay this is what the book will be about or this is what is this is the big idea that will organize all this research that I've been collecting.
0: Yeah. Well, so before we get into the book, one last question, you're as a parent who was interested in, uh, you know, sort of the education and the science of it with two children (laughs) who have been in school for 10 years, Mm -hmm. given the background that you have, if you were tasked with changing our education system for the better, what would (laughs) you like? What would you redesign about it?
1: Oh gosh. I'd love to redesign schools from top to bottom um, along the principle of children are not just their brains. Children have bodies. Children are embedded, like we all are, children are embedded in physical spaces and children are part of networks of of, um, relationships and communities. So uh, an education that would embrace all of those things rather than trying to, um, suppress them or, or or keep them out of the classroom, as is often the case now, that would be my ideal of an education. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, well, I think that makes uh, a perfect segue to getting into the concepts uh, in the extended mind. Uh, so I think that, you know, one of the things that is is really uh, was so striking to me about the book was this idea of, you know, sort of the body and the mind working together. And one of the things mm-hmm. you opened the book by saying is that the failure of our technology Technology to consistently enhance our intelligence has to do with the metaphor we encountered earlier in this introduction, the computer as a brain. Too often Mm -hmm. those who design today's computers and smartphones have forgotten that users inhabit biological bodies, occupy physical spaces, and interact with other human beings. Technology Mm -hmm. itself is brain bound, but by the same token, technology itself could be extended, broadened Mm -hmm. to include external resources that do so much to enrich the thinking we do in the offline world. And, you know, that struck me so much because I'm a person who literally spends the entire day building systems, you know, hmm. to take better notes, uh, all based on this concept, you know, that my friend Tiago Forte came up with called building a second brain. That uh, uh-huh. There's so little talk about this. I mean, we're building apps, we're building tools, you know, productivity tools, distraction blockers. Why is this not a more Prevalent narrative, and and you know, like, why why are we in this this sort of trap that we're in of thinking technology is the answer to everything?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I would trace it back. You could trace it back to two points in history. I think if you wanted to go way back, you could look at how old and entrenched this idea is. You know, going back to Rene Descartes and before that mind and body are separate and mind is elevated above the body. Mind is this pure crystalline sphere where we use our intellect and body is this grubby animal, like irrational, um, ungovernable, uh, creature that we, that has nothing to do with intelligent thinking. So that's a very old and entrenched idea in our culture. And then, and then it, it, that same idea, um, Reached its fullest flower maybe during the cognitive revolution of the 20th century, when human beings created computers, invented computers, and then looked at computers and said, Hey, our brains are like that. you know it's really weird. it's like we identified our brains with this this thing that our brains had created, but this this metaphor of brain as computer became incredibly powerful, incredibly pervasive, and it 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 really once you start noticing it, you notice that it it, it's embedded in so much of the way that we talk about ourselves and our brains. But, um, you know, computers don't have bodies. Computers um, operate the same way, whether no matter where they're located. And computers don't have friends <laughs> or yeah. relationships. Um, so the way we think about the brain became limited to this incredibly uh, narrow kind of intelligence that's exhibited by computers. Um, but that cuts out, that leaves out um, really the wellsprings of human intelligence. And that's um, that's that's been a really I think a really tragic um, oversight. Yeah. Well,
0: so how do we you know, sort of get back to that? Because one of the first concepts and this is where, you know, I was telling you my roommate has this business called Body Break- Based Breakthrough. The minute I read this. Suddenly Mm -hmm. everything he did made a lot more sense Mm -hmm. to me. You Mm -hmm. said that interoception is simply stated an awareness of the inner state of the body. Just as we have sensors that take in information from the outside world, retinas, cochleas, taste buds, olfactory bulbs, we have sensors inside our bodies that send our brains a constant flow of data from within. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was funny because when I read that, I started to suddenly see numerous sort of, you know, light bulbs went off in my head. I was like, oh, no wonder I get my best ideas when I'm surfing or snowboarding because mm-hmm. I'm getting mm-hmm. that, idea, those ideas are coming not just from my brain, but from my body. Mm-hmm. And of course you have, mm-hmm. you know, sort of all the stuff Stephen Kotler writes about uh, when it mm-hmm. comes to flow, because those are, you know, really, really high flow activities.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And I wonder if in moments like that, you really have to be attuned to your body to make the things happen that you want to have happen when you're surfing or when you're snowboarding. You're really tuned in and at one with your body. And I wonder if you're receiving its messages or it's the information that the body um, contains in a way that you you're not when you're sitting at your desk yeah so
0: you know, how do we begin to sort of you know cultivate what you call uh introceptive awareness and and you know get access to this you know what you say otherwise accessible uh, inaccessible information
1: yeah, well, there's a couple of techniques that um, have been proven scientifically to to increase interoceptive attunement. One of them is a, a technique borrowed from mindfulness meditation called the body scan, which is really just paying, bringing an uh, open minded, curious, non judgmental attention to whatever is. Arising whatever sensations are arising within your body at that moment. And when you, when you do that, and especially when you make that a, a regular practice, you start to realize that there's this constant flow of, of sensations from within that's there all the time. It's present all the time. And yet we're so used to ignoring it or even actively kind of pushing it away in the course of a busy day. And so I have made it a habit now to, um, not even do a, a formal Uh, body scan but just to um check in with with the internal state of my body kind of the internal world and not to always be uh constantly focused on the external world which is very easy for us to do in our in our busy days
0: yeah so one of the things that you talk about also uh, is this whole idea of physical activity. And I think that this really struck me because you know, to your point, you say our cultural our culture conditions us to see mind and body separate and so separate in turn that you know we have our periods of thinking basically mm-hmm. come from bouts of exercise and mm-hmm. considering how many of us you know take our make our visits to the gym only after work for example or on mm-hmm. weekends and you say right. we should be figuring out how to incorporate versus physical activity into the workday and school day right. which means rethinking how we approach our breaks uh yeah. and it's funny because literally i remember the morning i read that i was like okay you know what for once i'm not just going to sit here and try to power through the morning i'll just go for a walk
1: <laughs> good 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 i'm glad you were moved to um to try that out. How did it go?
0: Oh, it, I came back with, you know, suddenly I had all these thoughts that like access to suddenly like a, just an abundance of creative ideas that I um, hadn't really thought to, to really think about um,
3: prior. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.
1: if you really want to get something done, you just have to sit there, you know, and work your brain until it, um, until the task is complete. And actually that's, that's really counterproductive. And I think it taps into a second common metaphor for the brain, which is the brain as muscle, you know, with the growth mindset and, and with the idea of grit, we've been encouraged to think of the brain as a muscle that gets stronger the more you exercise it. But I, again, I think that's a pretty limiting. Analogy for the brain. It's uh, the brain actually is it, it's limited in its um in its capacity to do a lot uh, to do a lot of the things that we ask of it these days. And it needs help from the outside. It's not going to be sufficient just to build it up from the inside, so to speak.
0: Yeah. Well, this is another one that really struck me, and I think probably this is common for almost everybody listening to this, myself included. Uh, so there's one more erroneous assumption about breaks to address. We imagine that we're replenishing the brain's depleted resources when we mm-hmm. spend our breaks doing something that feels different from work, scrolling through Twitter, checking the news, looking at Facebook. The problem is that such activities engage the same brain regions and draw Uh, down the same mental capital we used to do our cognition centric jobs. And so that made me wonder about walks in general. And this is something that I've kind of like toyed with. So for me, like despite hosting a podcast, I actually don't listen to podcasts. Um, Mm -hmm. I prefer reading books. And the only time I ever Mm -hmm. do listen to them is when I'm going Mm -hmm. for a walk. And I've always wondered Mm -hmm. if I'm like, you know, not getting the Mm -hmm. benefits of the walk because I'm still Mm -hmm. taking in information.
1: Mm. That could be, I think, um, you know, most of us take our walks outside. So there's actually two things going on here. There's the physical activity and there's the experience of being in nature. And so you're getting some of the benefits of both of those things, but, um, there is research that suggests that, um, the benefits of a walk in nature are not as great if we take our, um, our devices with us, you know? So, um, you might want to try going for some walks, you know, where you're just kind of letting your mind um, run free and see what happens.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about this whole idea of um, movement being connected to our ability to remember and learn, because you, know, you say that information is better remembered when we're moving as we learn it uh, mm-hmm. and that it can help us to remember more accurately. Can you expand on that and explain, like, why that is and, you know, how we incorporate it? So, for example, let's say I wanted to, you know, after our conversation, Remember as much as I could from this conversation.
1: Yeah, well, the way memory works is is kind of not how anyone would have designed it, um, and that, that's because it wasn't designed. It's a product of evolution, and so the way we remember things is is um, is a product or a function of um, of how deeply we've processed process the meaning of um, of of what of what of the material that we're trying to remember. That's why a student can't. Just read a textbook and instruct herself, you know, remember this. Um, it actually is it, the brain, uh, treats as a signal, um, to remember something, the value of remembering something, um, if it's been deeply processed because that suggests and if it's been repeatedly encountered because that those are signals that, um, this material is going to be useful and is worth, um, expending the mental energy to, to remember. So the more cues and the more, um, Signals we can associate with a piece of information, the more likely it is that we'll remember that uh, piece of information. That's why, when we pair um, a a piece of information with uh, with a gesture, for example, like when we're learning a foreign language, or when we act out what we're what we're trying to understand or remember, rather than just um, thinking about it. You know, again, that that mode of sitting still and thinking. Um, that gives that, our brains a kind of another um, hook to like sink into that piece of information. And then later when we're trying to remember it, uh, it, it gives us another way to sort of reel in that information. So um, gesturing, acting things out, um, you know, also this uh, help us remember specific pieces of information um, and also physical activity, like a bout of physical activity just before we try to learn something tends to sharpen our cognitive abilities such that we'll remember that information better later if we've exercised just before learning it. Wow.
0: Well, okay. So, you know, I I remember the the chapters on gesture struck me with this line in particular, as somebody who does creative work um, was really one of those things that I thought, man, people really need to, to do this more often. Uh, Mm -hmm. You say privacy supports creativity and out of the way it offers Mm -hmm. us the freedom to experiment unobserved when our work is a performance put on for the benefit of others, we're less likely to try new approaches that might fail or look messy. And it's kind of funny because I always tell people, "It's like, I'm an average writer who writes a lot. And it's the only reason I ever write anything worth reading that most of that work is done with nobody watching.
4: Mm-hmm. And I think a mm-hmm. lot
0: of creative people have this sort of, you know, like, you know, internal narrative that gets in their way, this sort of inner critic where even when they're working in private, it gets in their way to you know not do what exactly you know what you're doing and reap the benefits of what you're talking about here.
1: Interesting. Well that the passage you just read from the book was from a chapter about how built spaces can support intelligent thinking and that was this is this has really been a a hot topic lately because we're all thinking or those of us who um work in offices, you know, there's, there's a lot of talk and a lot of thinking about what are offices going to look like when and if uh, people return to them. And part of what we know from research about what kinds of spaces um, are congenial for, in terms of encouraging intelligent thought, have to do with um, privacy and prote- protecting ourselves from distraction, for one thing, which the open office is very bad at, and also give as as you were saying um giving us some privacy uh in terms of being able to experiment without anyone watching but i i like the connection you just made now that like <laughs> for many of us uh creative types the the um the surveillance follows us into a private space because it's really within our own mind um and there's you know there's a bunch of ways we can kind of uh, relax that, that, that overseer. And interestingly, just to go back for a minute, one is very intense exercise. It turns out that very intense exercise tends to dial down the prefrontal cortex, which is that part of the brain that judges and analyzes and criticizes. Um, and very intense exercise can dial that down in a way that scientists compare to like, a drug trip or, or, dream, or dreaming, a dream state where ideas can sort of flow and mingle more, more easily. So that might be one way to sort of get, get out from under that internal judge.
0: Yeah. So one of the other things that you talked about that struck me and it explained why I was really, you know, adamant that I don't work in coffee shops is this whole idea of like <laughs> external monitors. Um, I hate <laughs> writing on my laptop. I, that's why I do almost all my work at my desk and your research mm-hmm. suddenly made that much more uh, concrete. I was like, oh, okay. So mm-hmm. what is going on there? Why is it that when we have these sort of bigger monitors, um, you know, external monitors connected that we're able to, I, I know you talked about the fact that we can take in more and connect, can make more yeah, what's, yeah. what's going on there?
1: Oh, that's interesting. So you like working in your own office because you're working at a, a computer with a large screen rather than yeah, a small laptop. Exactly. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Because, um, part of the problem with writing in a coffee shop might also be that you're aware of other people being around and that it takes up some measure of mental bandwidth that is, is, um, preserved when you're in your own space. But. But yeah, going back to that question of the bigger screen, there's some fascinating research that suggests that um, the way our brains um, deal with with abstract information and ideas, the way they deal with it best is by, um, or it, the brain treats ideas and concepts as um, as as space as mental space. You know, that's that's what we evolved to do. That's what we still do best. We still think in terms of physical space, even when we're dealing with digital content. So uh, the, our abilities to use those kind of embodied resources of physical navigation and uh, spatial memory, those are limited when we have a really small screen. But when we have a big screen, um, we can start moving uh, physically moving our bodies. We can start employing that spatial memory where things are in a fixed location and you remember, oh, this is over here and this is over there in a way that is very hard to do on a small screen where you're always sort of clicking through different windows and nothing stays fixed in its location. So um, basically when we have a big screen, we can bring all these embodied resources that remain dormant when we're, um, when we're either keeping ideas inside our heads or when we're relating to like a very small screen.
0: Yeah. Well, it's kind of funny. It it makes sense as to why like almost all the best writers I know all write with physical notebooks first um, and you know, I like, I'm always baffled by people who can write on a phone, uh, be like, I can, I mean, I'm probably too old to do that. Like I'm 43. So for me, I'm not one of these millennials who can text as fast as many of mm-hmm. them do. I'm just like, wow, mm-hmm. that's not even possible for me. Um, so mm-hmm. there are three things you mention uh, later in the book, uh, what you call embodied cognition, situated cognition, and distributed cognition. Can you explain mm-hmm. what those are and sort of how they play a role in our lives?
1: Sure. Yeah, the, and those form the sort of three sections of the book. The first is embodied cognition, the idea that the body plays an integral role in our um, in our thinking processes. Uh, situ- situated cognition is the idea that where we are affects the way we think, and distributed cognition um, refers to the fact that thinking happens among people and spread across different minds, and not just within one mind uh the one mind of an individual
0: yeah well let's do this. let's get into the the part i think that really struck me and ended up making you know uh just kind of really influenced the way I thought about your work was this entire idea of externalization uh, because mm-hmm. you may be familiar with it, it in the last probably year or so. It's kind of become, you know, the talk of the town when it comes to knowledge management, mm-hmm. which is, um, you know, mm-hmm. Sankaran's book, how to take smart notes where he mm-hmm. talked about Nicholas Luhmann, uh, you know, who was a social scientist who something like 80 years ago created this system called the Zettelkasten and ended up finishing mm-hmm. a PhD thesis in a year wrote 58 books and published 500 papers. And I'm like, wait a minute, my dad's mm-hmm. a professor. Like if any, mm-hmm. for anybody to do that, they had to have done something really weird. But mm-hmm. when I connected the dots between that and your work, it made a lot of sense because you talk mm-hmm. you know, extensively about the benefits of externalizing knowledge um, and the value of doing that. And I, I saw it firsthand in my own experience when I did mm-hmm. that and combined the two. So can you talk about, you know, what are the benefits of externalizing <laughs> knowledge and then how do we utilize that?
1: Yeah, so uh, that's really interesting what you say about this note-taking system because it sounds like it draws on this um this truism that uh, and this that's been supported by by research that um basically when we keep ideas and information inside our heads um we're limited in what we can do with them in ways that um open up when we get that stuff out of our head and onto physical space when we engage in cognitive offloading. So once we, as I say, get the contents of our minds out onto space, we can relate to them differently. You know, psychologists talk about um, the detachment benefit, which is um, uh, it like we're putting space between ourselves and our thoughts in a way that allows us to look at them anew and, um, and, interact with them in ways that wouldn't be possible if they remained in our heads. We can, uh, once we've cognitively offloaded, we can treat ideas and information as material objects that we physically manipulate and move around. You know, I'm picturing like, um, ideas on post-it notes that we actually can move around in, in space and we can engage in this navigational activity that I was talking about before we can, um, Physically sort of navigate through the landscape of of ideas and information, and all those things allow us to think more intelligently than if, um, you know, the material stayed inside our heads. And yet, we have this bias as a culture that smart people or geniuses, you know, they do it in their heads. They they um they they are able to uh, engage in sort of mental calculations or mental manipulations when really. Uh, not only is it more efficient and effective to offload that, that material onto physical space and work with it out in the world, but that's actually what, um, experts and masters of their craft do. You know, um, it's, it's kind of a myth that, um, smart people do it all in their heads. It's actually uh, a characteristic of, expertise and mastery that people effectively cognitively offload.
0: It's funny you say that because, um, I don't know if you've ever read it. There's a book called presentation Zen by Gar Reynolds, which I pretty much Mm -hmm. consider the Bible Mm -hmm. of, you know, designing good presentations. And Mm -hmm. he actually talks extensively about the fact that, uh, you know, he doesn't do anything on a computer uh, Mm. until he lays out the story and he uses it to storyboard a presentation. And I I remember, see, there are two things in that book that struck me that kind of, you know, uh, like reinforced what you've said here. One was uh, he had a story where he worked at Apple and he went into some product designer's uh, office for a meeting. And the guy had a MacBook or an iMac on his desk that hadn't been turned on in days. And they, they basically talked over, you know, like sketches. So one of the other things he did was he used post-it notes to plan out his presentations. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I noticed that I did the same thing and I did it for a book too. When I was writing my first book, I had post-it notes on the wall where, you know, I had like, you know, each, I think there was a a one color post-it note to mark each chapter and then others to mark the sections within the chapters. And it was amazing how much easier it was to move things around, mm-hmm. see where they fit. And, I, and now I remember why I had this idea to order those reusable post-it notes. It was because of your book.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's where. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. I'm a big post-it note fan myself.
0: Yeah. I, I, I'm kind of amazed that people don't uh, you know, utilize this whole idea of physical spaces.
1: Yeah, I I think they might believe that it's actually uh, that's too much of a hassle or that it's actually easier or faster just to do it in their head. And so that's why I'm so intrigued by this research on interactivity, which shows that people actually solve problems not only more accurately and more effectively and more creatively when they do it out in the world as opposed to in their heads, but actually faster. It's actually faster to solve a problem out in the world than to try to do it in your head.
0: Well. so another idea that you talked about that really struck me uh, was this whole idea of imitation. You say in fields from biology to mm-hmm. economics, to psychological, uh, to political science, people are discovering how valuable imitation can be as a way mm-hmm. of learning new skills and making intelligent decisions. And you know, it kind of takes us back to the beginning of our conversation about why I think publishers have lost their damn minds by trying to put the mm-hmm. F word in the title of every yeah. book, thinking they're yeah, going right. to have another Mark Manson on their hands. So you know, I, I get what you're saying. And it kind of funny enough takes us back to context. But how do you, you know, imitate in a way that leads to innovation without necessarily, you know, trying to replicate the success of somebody else and assuming you're going to get the same results?
1: Yeah, that is the trick. Because um, while we do, I think we have a bias against imitation in our culture that you can see in this sort of worship of innovators and, you know, and of originality and being first, Um, you know, often when you're, Trying to master a new skill, the most effective way to do that is to is to emulate someone who's already mastered it and kind of learn it from the inside by imitating someone else and in fact um you know the roman um, education system for centuries was based on you know was based on imitation on on emulating the masters until you were able when until you'd reached the student had reached a point where they were able to put their own twist or their own um, bring their own take to it. Um, but then you're right; there is a lot of like stupid imitation that goes on that is just kind of um, uh, mindless. And so, really, what is key to um, effective imitation or smart imitation is um, what psychologists call the the correspondence problem. Cracking the correspondence problem, and that means um take looking at a solution that someone else has come up with and identifying what it is about that solution breaking it down and figuring out what it is about that solution that would be good to borrow and then um noticing and observing how the different circumstances of your own your own situation because of course it's you're not going to be able to just cut and paste somebody's solution to to your own situation it's it's going to um it's going to have to be modified. Um, and so the, the correspondence problem is about figuring out what corresponds here. What is the, the common element with this problem that I'm looking at over here and my own problem that I'm trying to solve? And what can I borrow from someone else's solution that will help me while still adapting and modifying that um, that borrowing so that it fits my the particulars of my situation? Yeah.
0: Well, I, you know, I, I want to finish with this um, final piece um, on what you call a group mind. And you say that individual right. cognition is simply not sufficient to meet the challenges of a world in which information is so abundant, expertise is so specialized, and issues are so complex. In this moment, right. a single mind laboring on its own. Is at a distinct disadvantage in solving problems or generating new ideas. Something beyond solo thinking is required. The generation of a state that is entirely natural to us as a species, and yet one that has come to seem quite strange and exotic—the group mind.
1: Yes, yeah, and this this really struck me, especially as someone who's been a freelance writer for twenty years and has really worked in a very solitary way. Like I'm really fascinated by the group mind and why it can be so hard to achieve, even though. As I say, we evolved to think together, to think in groups, and yet there's so much dissatisfaction and friction and difficulty that we have working in groups, thinking together in groups. And, you know, I have a theory about that, which is that we have developed all these practices and protocols that are suited to individual thinking, you know, in our very individualistic culture And then we import those into a group setting where they just don't work very well. And so I think we need to uh, develop a whole new set of practices and protocols for thinking together in order for group work to be to be more satisfying, to be more effective, because we need to figure out how to do it. But right now we don't do it very well.
0: Yeah, well, it, it kind of to me in a lot of ways explains you know why I'm able to have sort of the abundance of ideas I do because I get to talk to people like you every day. So I have mm-hmm. this sort of you know massive group mind you know that is mm-hmm. so wide ranging. As I said, that includes porn stars, drug dealers, bank robbers, you know authors and social scientists. Like I always jokingly say, you know, if you want to rob a bank, become a porn star, or run for president, I can tell you how or introduce you to the people who can help.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you've figured out kind of um, the be- having the- how to have the best of both worlds. You know, there's this idea um, from psychological research called intermittent col- collaboration, which refers to the fact that people who are thinking on their own all the time, they tend to come up with a few great ideas, but a lot of really bad ideas because they're not, you know, they're not running it by their colleagues and people who are in touch with their colleagues all the time, tend to come up with a bunch of like, like, okay, but not great ideas because there's so much social pressure to kind of come to a consensus around acceptable, acceptable ideas, ideas that are acceptable to the whole group. So the way to get the best of both is to sort of oscillate between being alone And being in touch with other people. And it seems like the way you've set up your own work life, you almost do that by default.
0: Yeah, it kind of is. I mean, like almost everything I write is the byproduct of one of two things, a book that I've read or somebody that I've interviewed or, you know, Mm -hmm. much to my mother's dismay, some experience I've had with her.
1: (laughs) Oh, that's nice to know that moms like moms still matter. (laughs) Yeah,
0: well, it's funny. I always say the occupational hazard of being a writer is that everybody in your life is at risk of being turned into material in your work.
1: For Sure. Everything's copy.
0: Yeah. Wow. Hmm. Well, this has been really, really fascinating. Um, So I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Oh, Oh, what is it that makes something unmistakable? That's the question. Yeah. Hmm. That is very interesting. I would say, um, it's the stamp of, of, authenticity that, um, can only come from someone who really knows what they're about and really knows, um, who they are at some kind of deep level. And the product of, of the product that a person like that will generate from their own mind is going to have the unmistakable stamp of that, of that individual. Um, and, I think there's so much out there that is uh, the product of conformity, that is the product of of mindless imitation. And so when you come across something that really bears this stamp that I'm talking about of the unmistakable humanity of one, you know, in in this one particular in, instantiation uh, of this individual, like it's it's precious. And I think it's it's really um, it's unmistakable. It's like it's you know it when you see it.
0: Amazing. Um, Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, wisdom, and insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, um, your work, the book, and everything that you're up to?
1: Yeah. Well, thanks. This has been a really fun conversation. Um, People can find me at my website, which is www.annimorphypaul.com. And I'm also really active on Twitter and I really love engaging with people there. So people can find me on Twitter at um, it's at Annie Murphy Paul.
0: Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show.